Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to your source for all the latest news about the world of zoos, aquariums, conservation, and general animal stuff, Rossafari Zoo News. This episode is also coming to you, as the other two have, from The Road, and I am, uh, I'm really excited to be out here doing the thing. Um, this week's actually really cool. We are playing in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Now, Wilkes-Barre doesn't have a famous zoo, or even a not-famous zoo. No zoo, actually. There's one close in Scranton. Uh, I need to to give it an examination at some point. Uh, I don't think it's accredited. I gotta gotta check it out. Well, we'll see. We'll see what we think about that. But the reason that playing in Wilkes-Barre is so cool is because Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania is where ya boy John was born. My grandparents spent their whole lives here. My grandfather, who is now 90 years old, still lives here and uh, is coming out to, to see the show, to see the rock and roll, to feel his heartbeat line up with the, the, what, what, is, what his grandson's kicking out on the drums. Uh, and the whole thing's just really exciting. Actually, this has been kind of cool, this, this whole tour. Um, we've been playing a lot of towns where people on the tour have history and family and people coming out and close friends. And um, that doesn't happen a lot. It's a big country. And you're lucky if you get to see people, you know, if your entire cast, I mean, there are only eight of us in the actual show. um, You know, if you get one or two families or one or two groups of close friends on an entire, sometimes multi-month tour, that, that can be pretty lucky. But in this case... We are we are visiting a lot of places with a lot of people and and filling a lot of seats. And, you know, it's kind of nice when you're living on a bus, but you also get a slice of home. Whoa, slice of home. I, I wonder if that term is is where the the slang phrase home slice comes from. I'm intrigued. Okay, and by being intrigued, I quickly hopped on the interwebs and uh, I found out that the the term home slice originated just as a person from one's hometown it didn't mean a close friend and actually back in the 1940s when it was originally used it was often used with the overtone of someone who is a simpleton like oh that person is a home slice as though i got away from that town but this person didn't loser However, it has evolved, and by the 1980s, the term was used just to mean a friend, a good friend, somebody who was, in fact, your home slice. Man, I, I'm, I'm picturing my younger listeners listening to this and being like, no one has ever said the word home slice to me before, and I am embarrassed that you exist right now, John. You're a home slice, but like, in the simpleton way. Interestingly, because I decided to do a deep dive on this, and (laughs) I said interestingly, but I might be the only one who thinks so, I don't know. But then I wondered if the word homey came from home slice, and it did not do that. In fact, 
the word homie was a term originally that was slang in New Zealand in the 1920s, so 20 years before home slice was used in America, and it meant a recently arrived British immigrant. So now you know more about those words than you've ever wanted to, and I, I have the feeling that a whole bunch of my younger listeners are now learning that words like home slice exist. So, um, you're welcome? I, mm, anyway, I don't know. This podcast has gone off the rails already, and I am here for it. I love it. But uh, while, we're, while we're teaching you about things that you might not know about, here, learn about, oh, I don't know, a company? from this ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, my home slices, my homies, my home skillets, my home fries, my home bodies, whatever home type thing you may be, even a homeowner, it is time for... One, two, three, four. Ow, oh, that's a funky monkey. Treat kangaroo. Or a bench around. It's two news, yeah. All right, so we are going to start this week with our Zoo COVID update, as we have been doing. Um, although I have to tell you, uh, it, it's going to start with um, a non-Zoo COVID-related thing. So before I left for this tour, I decided that I wanted to make life easy for myself to do as little recording as possible. So I went ahead and I recorded the intros for all three Zoo Newses and, and some other stuff to make life easier. Well, it, uh, it turns out, that um that Wilkesbury show that I mentioned, yeah, it it didn't happen. Uh, nobody was buying tickets, not because of our show, but because of the fact that uh, the very largely conservative area there did not like the fact that they needed to either prove proof of vaccination or provide a negative COVID test. So people have been bombing the website with bad reviews and um, refusing to buy tickets. And so my family show got canceled because people are in denial about COVID. Uh, in North Carolina, where we had another large group of family coming, um, they couldn't make it, although the show sold extremely well, because uh, the, the family actually <clears throat> caught COVID. Everyone's, everyone's fine now. But um, yeah, that happened. And I'm currently in a place in New York. That had the same issue as Wilkesbury, except uh, they uh, they decided to go ahead with the shows with the people who were willing to show up. So, despite the fact that uh, this venue has had their reputation online ruined by uh, review bombs, and despite the fact that um, they barely sold any tickets compared to 
the size of the house, uh, we're doing two nights of shows here to the people who did want to be there. And and that's awesome. And it's, it's great to have them there. But um, it's been really interesting seeing the effect of this on something like a tour. It's been crazy. Um, I almost just redid the intro, but then I thought, no, this is actually kind of part of this whole COVID story, so it's worth sharing. But enough about me. Uh, the the Denver Zoo has reported that their tigers are completely better from the COVID-19 infection they had, and their lions are still on the road to recovery, but all seem to be doing better. It's a really slow recovery for them, though. And don't forget, Honolulu just lost one of their lions last week to COVID. Uh, in general, it seems like most of the animals that um, have been diagnosed with COVID have recovered, but uh, it's, it's a long journey, and it's a scary one. So, um, yeah, yay, Denver Zoo and National Zoo and, and a lot of these other zoos where the animals are recovering. It's, it's nice to see that they are doing better, but uh, hopefully we don't lose anybody else. So it's nice to have some positives in the COVID story for a second, though. Yay, healing. Moving away from COVID, scientists at the Cincinnati Zoo have been awarded two grants to help their work to save polar bears. One of the grants is being used to study hormones that may provide insight into reproductive health and overall well-being of individual polar bears, while the other grant will fund work to identify the reasons for low productive rates among polar bears in zoos and captivity in general, and to help improve propagation and breeding management strategies moving forward. For a variety of complex reasons, it's very hard to get new polar bears into the captive population, uh, and there are about 40 remaining in U.S. zoos, so it is essential to make their breeding uh, more successful and easier to keep those populations going. And also, while I'm talking about the Cincinnati Zoo, major props to their PR team. Um, they have put a lot of focus lately on getting their conservation message out there. They have a team there called Conservation and Research of Endangered Wildlife, known as Crew, and they have been talking about Crew a lot on social media and in press releases lately. It's awesome to see one of the best PR teams in the business do even better. Love it. You guys rock. Yay, Cincy. I miss you. I'm coming soon. I'm going to try anyway. Love you. And speaking of things I love, let's talk about turtles. The ZSL London Zoo has hatched three critically endangered big-headed turtles. And no, I'm not being mean. The species is called the big-headed turtle. They're actually called that because their heads are so large that they can't retract them into their shells, and to compensate, nature has given them armor plating from head to tail and a very sharp beak that helps them fend off predators. They're also known for being incredibly feisty, which, I mean, given that they're turtles, is kind of adorable. Honestly, though, there are really no other turtle species that have those same adaptations, and so big-headed turtles are really cool and really unique animals that have survived a long time and now are critically endangered. So, major props to the ZSL London Zoo. And while we're giving major props, let's talk about Maritime Aquarium in Connecticut. I've mentioned other facilities doing this, but Maritime has now announced that they have joined the ranks of zoos and aquariums that are participating in the SNAP Food Assistance Program, meaning that people who are on the SNAP program, food stamps and other stuff like that, 
can receive deep discounts for admission to the aquarium, with the hope being that those families will be able to be educated and learn about amazing things and get to have those cool experiences, despite the fact that aquariums in particular are really expensive. And don't get me wrong, don't get it twisted. Uh, they, they cost a lot of money to maintain, and, and aquariums are, you know, they're they pricey for a reason. They are worth it. But um, it's really cool to see that lower-income families will be able to experience the joys of going to an aquarium. And now we're going to stick with aquariums and with endangered turtles and talk about some work that has been done by New England Aquarium. Nearly 100 eastern box turtles were being illegally smuggled out of the U.S. recently, but were caught and confiscated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and they have been sent to the New England Aquarium, as well as Zoo New England and Roger Williams Park Zoo, uh, for assistance uh, with their health issues. The turtles were sent to these facilities because they were suffering from dehydration and eye infections. However, what they quickly realized when they started to do the health workups on the turtles was that they were not just having those issues, but they also were carrying ronavirus. Now, you've heard about ronavirus on this podcast before, but if you don't remember, it is real bad, y'all. It is a virus that gets into amphibians and spreads through water, and it spreads like crazy. One turtle with ronavirus can take out an entire population. Symptoms include hemorrhaging, gasping for air, and accumulating fluid under the skin, and it is almost always fatal. And sadly, at this time, there is no known treatment for ronavirus. This actually created a really interesting uh, situation for the people at Zoo New England and the aquarium and Roger Williams Park Zoo, because fortunately, whenever new animals come in, they are quarantined, so they these turtles were kept with just each other. But what can you do with them? They can't be re-released into the wild once they have ronavirus, and they can't be put into a captive population, or they'll give all of them ronavirus. So the three facilities found themselves with a, an interesting situation on their hands. Almost 100 box turtles with ronavirus that they could treat but probably not save and no real idea of where to house them. Since New England Aquarium was spearheading this whole project, they quickly and aggressively pursued placing the turtles in a biosecure research facility. And a laboratory at the University of Illinois was willing to take the turtles in to further study ronavirus. I have to give the aquarium, as well as the lab in Illinois, huge props for working this out because while the prognosis for these turtles is grim, they're going to have good, healthy lives for as long as they can, and they're going to hopefully help their wild brethren by furthering the research into the virus. I wish I had a happier ending for this story. I wish I could tell you that all the turtles are going to be healed and go on to live great lives, uh, and I can't. And sometimes that's how it goes. But it is awesome to see how these facilities came together to turn this bad situation into as much of a positive as it can be. And speaking of aquariums, the Georgia Aquarium is also showing up in Zoo News this week because they have recently partnered with Evolve Systems, which is spelled like the word evolve without the E at the end, to provide enhanced security screening and overall safety measures at the aquarium. The effects have been incredibly noticeable. 
So one of the biggest complaints that I've always had about the uh, Georgia Aquarium is that when there is a long line to get in, it is exacerbated by the security procedures. And I did notice that the last time I was there that it was a lot quicker. Well, that is because Evolve uses Evolve Cortex AI, which is a artificial intelligence weapons detection algorithm to instantly detect and identify a person carrying a weapon without slowing the flow of visitors carrying their personal items. It's really impressive. They can scan up to like 3,400 people an hour. So um, this has made a huge difference getting into the aquarium. Since making the change earlier this year, the aquarium has seen a 15% increase in guest experience scores while shrinking the security system lobby footprint by 50% and reallocating half of security staff to areas other than the entrance. I dig it. And that brings us to... Conservation! Conservation! News time! Oh yeah! For just the second time ever, Raptor View Research Institute has found a red-tailed hawk mixed with a rough-legged hawk as a hybrid. The first time researchers found a hybrid like this, they thought it would never happen again, but it now has, and so more research is being done. The bird was fitted with a GPS transmitter to try to track location and see what it's going to be doing. It's currently alive and doing well, hanging out in Montana, Um, but there are so many questions. Will the bird stick around the region or will it migrate? Uh, It's also two years old, and so next year will be the first year that it might be able to breed. And there are so many questions. Where will it summer? What species will it nest with, if it even nests? Will it go with the red-tailed or with the rough-legged? Might the bird lead researchers to a summer area where there are other hybrids that they just didn't know about? Are hybrids like this as rare as it seems, or do they simply go undocumented? So many questions. It's really exciting that the uh, Institute was not only able to find this bird, but to put on the tracker. And it's going to be really cool to see what incredible data they gain from it. So whenever we talk about great apes and their populations in the wild, we always say that, you know, Human factors have a lot to do with population declines, but that the number one biggest issue facing apes is habitat availability, which is often hampered by humans, but that that's number one and human activity is number two. Well, a recent very comprehensive study is saying that is not the case and that, in fact, human activity and not habitat availability is the greatest driver of ape abundance. The study covered gorillas, bonobos, and chimpanzees and found that roads, population density, and even gross domestic product are better at determining the abundance of apes in any region than ecological factors such as forest cover. This means that even if suitable habitat is still present at various locations such as tropical rainforest, apes do not occur anymore or at much lower density just because of the human activities going on there, according to the lead author of the study, Isabel Ordez Nemeth of Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Furthermore, the relationship between GDP and great apes indicates a decline of great apes with more developed, larger economies. The study also found that only 10.7% of the predicted great ape population was found in areas with high levels of legal protection. 
So with basically 90% of the great ape population in Africa living outside of protected areas, and with human factors being the biggest issue contributing to where they live and how they thrive, uh, it's clear that there needs to be a reassessment of what we're doing for ape conservation in Africa. And the ability to find the balance between successfully protecting these species while also, you know, letting humans grow and exist and and have their world and grow their economies and their civilization. Uh, the balance is going to be tricky, y'all, but that is going to be what has to be figured out in order for great apes to survive. Interestingly, but not surprisingly, uh, the study actually mirrors the evidence that is being found when studying elephant populations, which are actually doing better than great apes. But um, still, it seems that more than habitat, more than anything, the biggest thing that influences whether or not an area will have a healthy elephant population, just like a great ape population, is how much human activity is there, even if there is still plenty of protected open area for the apes or elephants. Couple this with a story I did a couple weeks ago about the fact that in protected areas uh, where apes live, more human-based diseases are getting in because the human civilization is encroaching right up to the area that is protected. And uh, it, it paints a kind of bleak picture right now for the human and great ape coexistence. Fortunately, with the studies being out there and with so many amazing conservationists being dedicated to saving these species, much work will be done to fix this problem, I am sure. A new moth species has been discovered on Madagascar, where all the cool new species are apparently found. <laughs> uh, this moth uh, was actually predicted by Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace way back in the 19th century, but was not officially recognized, discovered, and documented until recently. Known as Wallace's Sphinx Moth, the unique creature is considered to have the longest tongue of any insect, measuring up to 30 centimeters. This adaptation allows the moth to reach the bottom of the nectar tubes of the star orchid in Madagascar, making them the only insect able to, and thus guaranteeing that they will always have some food available to them. Now, way back in 1862, when Charles Darwin discovered this orchid, he speculated that it would take a moth with an extremely long tongue to reach the nectar from the orchid's tubes. Five years later, Alfred Lord Wallace predicted that this creature would not only exist, but would be similar to an already known African hawk moth with a long proboscis. Well, it turns out that they were both correct. And this is just one of those fun stories that I love because it's such a reminder that we don't actually know all that much about animals and the world that we live in and share with them, despite the fact that we know a lot at the same time. But it's a huge world with a lot of complex species and uh, new ones are being discovered all the time. And I think that's really cool. So this next story is going to need a little bit of backstory. Back in the 1970s, uh, as industrialization was slamming through Singapore, the country was, you know, becoming kind of gross, and a lot of the animals fled from all of the major urban centers. However, since then, the government of Singapore has worked hard to clean up its land and waterways again, and a lot of native species have started returning to those areas. 
which adorably or annoyingly, depending on what side you're on, includes otters who now live happily in major cities. Otters live in families that are known as romps, and that makes sense as the 10 otter families in Singapore have been romping through the country and causing lots of havoc. Can you imagine driving your kid to school and as you go to turn left, somebody runs out in front of your car to stop you because a bunch of otters are crossing the street to go on a hunting trip? Or... In Singapore, there are a whole lot of koi ponds, and uh, some of these koi ponds have fish that have been raised for decades, and now all those koi ponds have become buffets for the otter rumps as the mothers take the kids there, blind the koi with their claws, and then allow their children to hunt them safely. Even the presidential mansion has had otterly visits multiple times. A huge group of individuals that love the otters have actually started tracking them, following them, taking photos and video, helping them cross the streets in busy cities, and um, just kind of telling their stories. Uh, people are comparing it to a real-life Game of Thrones as the Ten Romps fight for the same food sources and survival in an urban area. Uh, these otter watchers literally have named them and can recognize them based on things like, oh, this one is missing a toe or this one has a messed up ear or whatever. And uh, they tell their stories every day. They follow them and they share what's going on. And it's become a huge thing. And otter watchers love it. On the other side, the people who are having their koi killed or who you know, have their lawns destroyed by otters or are sick of seeing a bunch of dead fish on the boardwalks because of the otters eating so much, well, they're not so happy about it. But uh, it, it's interesting to see. And it's an interesting study, and frankly, an adorable study because otters are adorable, uh, in what happens when some rewilding works in an urban space. You know, we think of human-animal conflict often in terms of things like huge destructive elephants or big scary lions or whatever. But the truth is, you know, even little adorable things like otters can be a divisive nuisance. And uh, it's it's kind of interesting to see humans having to learn to coexist with them. Um, but hey, I'm all about that rewilding and cleaning up the water and making the land better for everyone. So uh, that's cool. I dig it. I think this is a really fun story. And I really wish I could go to Singapore and just like hang out with some urban otters. Ooh, maybe I should start a company in Singapore called Urban Otter Fitters. No? No. Okay, okay, geez. And last, but certainly not least, although one could say lesser, uh, red panda numbers are improving in the project areas that are being worked on by Red Panda Network. Get it, lesser because lesser panda? Heyo. Anyway, your boy John over here uh, is a volunteer for Red Panda Network, as, as you know, and, and one of my gigs there is that I work on the writing and communications team. And I have been privileged to write a press release that says that there is officially evidence of growing Red Panda numbers in Nepal. Please go to at Red Panda Network on social media and um, check out the link in their bio and you can read the full article because I'm really proud of it. And it's the first time I ever wrote a press release. Uh, but the, the gist of it is that basically the conservation efforts being done by Red Panda Network are 
incredible and are working and we already kind of knew that and we had anecdotal evidence but now now there's like actual real evidence and i had a blast digging into exactly what that evidence was I even got to interview Sonam Tashilama, Red Panda Network's program coordinator in Nepal, for this story. So go check it out so that you can support me and read about how Red Panda Network is doing amazing things. Yay! In other So you may remember me telling you about Baylor University's live mascots, Joy and Lady, who are bears, and they're American black bears that live in an ACA-accredited habitat on campus. Well, if that's not cool enough, Joy and Lady have now become the first ever live mascots to tweet. Not like birds. I bet there are live bird mascots that have tweeted. But like sending a message on Twitter. So Baylor University came up with this box that they were able to put into their enclosure, and um, it was heavy enough for bears to stand on and hit and do all the things, and then they put enrichment items on it. And when the bears activated the box, it sent some preloaded tweets into the Twitterverse. Thus, the first ever bears to tweet are Joy and Lady. It's adorable. It's silly. Some of the tweets were pretty great, too. One of them said, told a finance major I was a bear. And he said, not in this market. What is that supposed to mean? Get it? Because bears don't understand finances. Meh. Anyway, I was entertained. I also have to say that I would find this a lot less cute if it was not an AZA accredited habitat and I was worried about what was going on with the bears. So I really dig the fact that their mascots live in such an awesome place. There is currently a picture circulating the internet of a bunch of dogs sitting in theater seats. Now, I'm going to tell you I have not done my homework on this one because it's just a silly little thing, but the caption claims that it is a bunch of service dogs learning to stay still during a theatrical performance and that the dogs were all taken to a theater and actors went on stage and put on a show just for the dogs. Now, in my experience working with training service dogs and working dogs, the idea would be that you would actually just take the dog to a theatrical performance with other humans and stuff. But you know what? I don't care. I don't need to do the research on this one. I would love to volunteer to have an audience of dogs at one of my shows anytime, any day. Come on, people. Let's make it happen. The picture is adorable. So definitely take a second and Google this story uh, just, just for the fun of it all. And finally, in other news, we have an interesting story about pandas, the other kind, giant pandas. No, no, I really, I love them too. Ignore the vitriol in my voice. I I do love giant pandas. Anyway, uh, we've never officially known why giant pandas are black and white and have their little patches and stuff. Um, It's often been speculated that it was camouflage, but kind of hard to tell how that is camouflage. However, using advanced image analysis techniques and using rare photos of pandas in their natural habitat as opposed to captivity has proven that it actually does work really well as camouflage, especially from a distance. The team of researchers that worked on this project found that the black patches of fur help the giant panda to blend in well with tree trunks and darker areas of the forest, while the white patches match up with the waxy specular lighting of foliage during the summer— and snow during the winter. 
The distinctive black and white patches of fur also create something called disruptive coloration, a form of camouflage that breaks up the visual outline of the animal. So, yay knowing a thing that we thought but didn't know. Animal, animal, animal holidays. Animal, animal, animal holidays. All right, and remember, folks, November is Manatee Awareness Month, so if you are unaware of manatees, make thyself aware of them, possibly by listening to that episode from Moat Marine Lab. Yeah, you're not going to get sick of hearing that reminder during the entire month. Anyway, uh, Saturday is World Numbat Day. Numbats are really cool little Australian animals, if you don't know. It's also National Bison Day, which um, are not small or Australian animals, but are still pretty cool. And it's also the, takes deep breath, International Day for Preventing the Exploitation of the Environment in War. That is a really, really specific day, y'all. Then on Sunday, November 7th, We have the ending of Daylight Savings Time for those in North America that do that thing. And it's also National Hug a Bear Day. I I assume that it means a stuffed bear, I hope. And then uh, there are no other individual days that week because the entire week is, you guessed it, Polar Bear Week. Or maybe you didn't guess it. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you guessed it or not, but it's Polar Bear Week, y'all. And those are your animal holidays for the week. So there you have it, folks. Another week of Zoo News is in the books. I'd like to say thank you to my Red Panda-level patrons, Laura Shank and PJ Bevan, and also to everyone who contributed this week. Colleen Lenahan, Anya Keen, S. Daniel McPhail, Ren Howell, Martin from Martin's Exotics, and Peter Oilo. And remember, you too can contribute to Rossafari Zoo News and hear your name just like those cool people did by tagging me in stories, emailing them to me, rossafaripod at gmail.com, DMing them to me, sending up smoke signals and hoping for the best, or breaking into my house and whispering them softly in my ear as I sleep. Please don't do that last one. Well, maybe some of you, but most of you, please don't do that last one. All right. And remember, friends, Newsy Credits Backwards is Stiderk Yeswen. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.